All right, thank you, Tony, Aaron, and Kent. Thank you for leading us well. If uh, we can take out our scriptures at this point and open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the remainder of that chapter this morning in the exposition of God's Word. Last week we looked at uh, part of it, and we're going to continue to look at the kingdom of God through Jesus' eyes. This in-betweenness, this in-between time that we have, that he's explaining to them. The time between his first coming and second coming. What the kingdom will look like, what the expectation of that kingdom should be. Uh, before we dive into the text, please uh, bow and pray with me. Father God, I pray that the time that I've spent in your word, seeking to understand your text and explain it to your people is profitable this morning. Your word is sweet. Your word is like honey on our mouths. And so, Lord, we pray that as I preach that that sensation that sweetness gives to our senses will be the same as they hear your word exposited. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Philip Yancey And the Jesus I never knew wrote this. There are two days that have earned names in the church calendar. Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Yet in a real sense, we live on Saturday, a day with no name. What the disciples experience in a small scale, one day, between his death and resurrection, we now live on a cosmic scale. He goes on to write, I know of a woman whose grandmother lies buried beneath a 150-year-old oak tree in a cemetery in Louisiana. In accordance with the grandmother's instructions, only one word is carved on the tombstone. Waiting. It's a good thing to remember that in the cosmic drama, we live out our days on Saturday. The in-between day with no name. And in a real sense, that what Jesus is doing in chapter 13 that we've been studying is resetting our expectations about Saturday. What we should expect the kingdom of God to look like on the in-betweenness between his first coming and his second coming. Jesus told them right out of the gate in the parable of the soils that between his first and second coming, the kingdom is going to be smaller than expected. There are going to be fewer than expected. This is what we looked at last week. The word of God has transformative effects on fewer than we think. And one, it has absolutely no effect, right? The seed hits that hard path and bounces right off. On two others, it seems to have an effect, at least for a little while, and then the pressures of life, the persecutions because of his name, and maybe the, even the temptations of the world. This person does not persevere to the end. Only one seed seems to persevere to the end. So the idea there is the kingdom of God is, is smaller than it seems. He then goes on to say in a, 
in another set of parables that he wants to set the expectation of the kingdom he is establishing to be relatively obscure. The kingdom is going to be relatively obscure, even hidden, until the very end. That's what we learned from the parables of the wheat, of the weeds rather, in the net last week. The darnel weed that grows in the wheat fields looks exactly like the wheat that's growing up until the very end. In the fishing metaphor, you, the parable, you see that you don't know what you have in the net as you're fishing for those long hours until the net is dragged on the shore or brought into the boat. It's hard to discern when you're fishing. I'm sure the lobstermen among us can understand this. You're pulling up these long lines. You don't know what you have in there until it surfaces. The kingdom is hard to discern on Saturday. The world, the weeds, seem to, to make it hard to see, doesn't it? That's why we ask questions about the kingdom. Like, where is it? Where is this kingdom? Or is it physical or spiritual? What is it? Where is it? What does it look like? Jacob and I had a wonderful conversation this week about the kingdom. What does it look like? We ask these because it's obscured in this age until the end when that weed appears or the net is brought just above the, the surface of the water. And then the kingdom will be obvious. There's the darnel. There's the wheat. There's the good fish. There's the edible fish. There's the clean fish. There's the unclean fish. And they can be separated. But right now, it's hard to discern. So what do we do? We wait. Just like on that tombstone. So just as we're starting to feel a little despondent about the kingdom of God, just as we're starting to feel like, well, well, this isn't very uplifting, he gives us another set, two sets of parables that helps us. Gives us a, a little encouragement. Look with me at verses 31, 32, and 33. Here Jesus says this about the kingdom. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Although encouraging... It can be a little frustrating because the kingdom of God, what he is saying here, is will grow slowly but deeply. The kingdom of God will grow slowly but deeply in this age. And that can be frustrating at times because we want the kingdom of God in all its fullness to happen right now, don't we? That's our desire. That's what we look for. We want justice now. We want peace now. We want the wars to stop. We want the relationships restored. We want rightness now. We want 
as with the image we used last week, that sandstorm that is so obvious, so powerful, so immense, so all-permeating to happen right now. And so it's frustrating, this kingdom. Jesus says, the kingdom, I want to reset your expectations. The kingdom of God is going to grow on this Saturday, this in-between time, slowly but deeply. Slowly but deeply. That's what the mustard seed teaches us. The mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds in of gar- all garden plants. If you had a few of them on your hands and a, and, and a wind blew up, you wouldn't miss if one or two flew away. They're just so small. But if you wait and be patient, that little seed, once planted, grows into one of the bigger garden plants. This mustard seed would grow sometimes 12 feet tall. Little teeny pinprick of a seed. Given time, grows deeply, slowly, but it grows into one of the largest plants in the kingdom. And that's the growth of the kingdom of God. It starts small and slowly grows. And that's what's so frustrating about this in-between time. We want culture changed now, don't we? We want the culture that is, that is just taking over to, be, to, to have some kind of roadblock, to stop. Can't the kingdom of God stop where it's going? We want sin to be pushed back, don't we? And not progressing, but regressing. We want, like I said earlier, relationships to be restored. I was talking with somebody a couple weeks ago, and, and I said, what do you imagine heaven is going to be like? When you think of heaven, what comes to mind? And we talked about it for a few minutes, and I said, for me, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is totally restored relationships, perfect relationships, relationships where there is no sin that hampers between two people. In heaven, your relationship with an almost stranger, so to speak, will be closer than the relationship with your spouse now. And so much more. Relationships, we want those restored. But God says to us today, do not despise small beginnings. Do not despise small beginnings. That's what he told his people 700 years, uh, 600 years before Christ through the prophet Zechariah. If you remember, that's where that Bible verse comes from. Do not despise small beginnings in Zechariah 4. If you know the context of Zechariah, you know that the people have, have come back from exile and they've come back to the land and, and there's discouragements on all sides, people opposing them from all sides. They've begun building the temple and the temple that they're building is so much smaller than the grand temple of David. Jerusalem is in ruins. Its walls are in ruins. The people are discouraged. They look around and they start complaining. There's so few of them. And they start saying things like, where is this grand kingdom that God has promised us through the prophets? It doesn't look like it. Where's the power of God in all this? So what does God do? He gives Zechariah a vision. 
gives Zechariah a vision in chapter 4 of, of this, of a lamp, golden lampstand with a bowl on top of it and two olive trees on either side of the lampstand and the olive trees, from the olive trees are flowing oil and the oil is continually filling up the bowl on top of the lampstand. Commentators generally agree that the golden lampstand signifies the people of God, the precious people of God. And the people were to bring light to that dark world. That's what the oil on top was to signify, the flaming oil. And to fulfill this ministry, God supplies an endless power. Olive oil from those olive trees, just flowing continually, keeping that light alive. A few verses later, we have that wonderful verse, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. The Holy Spirit is going to give the power. But the main encouragement God wants his people to have from this vision is found a little later on in verse 10 when he says, Do not despise the days of small beginnings. Do not despise small beginnings, people of God. Do not be discouraged by small growth, people of God. Do not be discouraged that these things are happening at such a molasses-like pace. The kingdom might look small and insignificant compared to what's going on in the world today. But wait. Be patient. That's what Jesus is encouraging his disciples in this text. Yeah, the kingdom might seem small and obscure right now, but wait, don't despise these small beginnings. The kingdom of God is going to grow slowly and progressively, and it will be huge one day. It's the pattern we see in Scripture, isn't it? That's the pattern we see in Scripture. I mean, just think of of since we started Matthew's Gospel, we have this one baby born in a filthy manger. Right? And he grows up and he dies on the cross and he rises again. He commissions these 12 men. He says, go out into all the world and preach the Gospel and teach them and disciple them. And those 12 go out And in the book of Acts, we see them going out and sharing Christ. And at one time, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 come to faith. And we think, there's a powerful, but but think about that, 3,000. That's fairly insignificant when you think of the whole world. It's still small. It's amazing, but it's still small. And they go out and, and then the, the church goes up into Turkey, Asia Minor, and they plant a few little anemic churches there. And then they go over to Greece and it, then it goes over to Rome. By, by the end of the book of Acts, by the end of the first century, we have, we have Christians kind of very lightly scattered around the Mediterranean basin, hardly making any huge impact at all. But it grows, doesn't it? The, you who know your history, it keeps growing century after century, influence after influence, and, and the Roman Empire is eventually conquered by the, by the gospel. Keeps growing, growing through the Middle Ages, 
through the Reformation. Once the Reformation, we have this huge bloom and it starts going into other countries, doesn't it? Other continents. Until now, we have the gospel on all seven continents of the world. Until now, we have the gospel in almost all of the 195 countries of the world. Do not despise small beginnings. I was given an email this week by our deacon of records, Joan Tukey, and, and in it, it just gives an update on the, the, um, the, the, the statistics of the church and, and where we are, and it happened to have the history of the church. So I had an opportunity to glance at the history of the church. In 2002, the year before I got here, there were 40 members of this church. By God's grace, 18 years later, there's 81 members of this church. Now we sit here and go, wow, wow. That's really slow growth. The, this church will not be written about. You know, reporters will not come to this church and go, wow, tell me how you did this. That's 20 years. Slow, progressive growth. When I got here there in 2003, there were, I, I think the statistics said, uh, 46 people in attendance average over the year. Last year, we had 109 average in attendance. Holy mackerel, that's great. That's small potatoes compared to the world. Slow, progressive growth. Do not despise small beginnings. We are a mustard seed on a long journey. Be patient. Wait. God's kingdom will grow. That's what Jesus wants to encourage us to see. His kingdom has been slowly and progressively growing here and in the world. And whatever it touches, whatever his kingdom touches, whatever it touches, it transforms. That's what we get out of the parable of the leaven, don't we? Whatever it touches, it transforms. Listen again. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So here this ambitious woman took about 50 pounds of flour, would normally feed about 100 people, and and she takes a little yeast, probably a little starter, and he puts it in that flour and water and starts working it and working it and working it, letting it rest and working it and letting it rest. And that yeast makes its way through the whole batch, that little teeny starter. Those of you who bake bread know what I mean. Little teeny, teeny bit of starter. Just works its way throughout the whole thing. Totally transforms that inert flour and water into a living, breathing organism. Transformed. That's how the kingdom of God is on the in-betweens. Whatever it touches, it transforms. You see that in cultures, don't you? It transforms cultures. It, it brings intrinsic value to the person. That's one of the things when I lived over in Japan that, that struck me the most. 
was in America we value a person. In, in, in Japan, they really don't. The person is just a cog, something that can be tossed aside. It transforms taking care of the weak and sick. If Christianity is responsible for hospitals being built and care given to the sick. It transforms the care of the helpless. Christianity is responsible for orphanages being founded and caring for the helpless there. It transforms the arts. Liter- literacy rates skyrocket when Christianity enters a culture because we want them to be able to read the word of God for themselves. But most importantly, what the, what the kingdom of God does when it touches a life is it transforms the life. The gospel transforms your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. A family from a remote area was making a visit to the big city for the first time and they checked into this huge hotel. They stood in amazement because they were from a small town. They, They just looked at this hotel in the entrance Leaving the reception desk, they went to the elevator and they, they had no idea what this, this thing did. And so they just stood there in front of the elevator. And as they stood there looking at the elevator, the doors opened and, a, and an elderly woman walked in. The doors closed. They just stood there and stared. About a minute, minute and a half later, the, the doors opened and a beautiful young woman walked out. The man touches the son's arm and says, go get your mother. A lot of times we think that's how gospel transformation happens, don't we? A lot of times when we read that verse, we think that's how it happens. You know, the doors close and then they open and I'm a transformed person. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Transformation happens slowly, progressively, but deeply and abidingly in your life. It's like leaven. It slowly and progressively begins to change and transform you. 1 Corinthians 3.18 kind of balances out the previous verse where he says, We all with unveiled faces behold the glory of God are being transformed into that same image from one degree to another. It's degree by degree is how the gospel transforms you. Its power comes from the Holy Spirit, like that oil flowing. Only the Holy Spirit can actually bring change in your life. But the engine of change is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the engine. That's why we say around here that we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And as you do that, as you do that, your heart begins to change. Everybody here, most people here have probably seen the, the movie My Fair Lady. That's what My Fair Lady is all about. If you know that story, it's about a bet between Professor Higgins and Colonel Pickering. 
Professor Higgins is this, uh, this, this diction master, this, this societal, he knows all the customs, and he bets Colonel Pickering that he can take a, a commoner and present her at this royal societal event in three months. So the bet is made. They find Eliza Doolittle on the streets, a flower girl, a cockney flower girl. She has a strange accent. She's, she's brash. And he takes her in and he begins to train her. And Higgins' drills and lessons are hard. And he's insensitive to her. He drives her like a slave master. However, the, the, the character of Colonel Pickering is different. He kind of softens those blows. He treats Eliza with respect. He's kind to her. The great day arrives and they bring Eliza Doolittle to this royal social event and she comes in with this gown and, and, and all decked out and she, she is able to talk with eloquence. She's able to converse and she passes the test 100%. She is accepted. She's the toast of London. And when after the, the event, Higgins and Colonel Pickering are back in the study and they're kind of toasting their success. And at one point, Higgins says, I created, he points at Eliza and he says, I created this thing out of squashed cabbage leaves. And if you know it, that's when Eliza kind of snaps. Eliza snaps he finally confronts the professor and tells him that he may have changed her dialect, but the kindness of Colonel Pickering changed her heart. To that, which Colonel Pickering kind of demures. And Eliza continues and says this, Of course, that is Higgins' profession, but you know what I began, you know what began my real education? She turns to Colonel Pickering and says, You calling me Miss Doolittle on the first day. That was the beginning of self-respect for me. You see, the difference between a lady and a flower girl isn't how she behaves. It's how she's treated. How she is treated by Colonel Pickering changes her. How Christ has treated us changes us. It doesn't change our behavior or addiction or how we speak. It changes our heart. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved us so much. He treasured us so much he was willing to sacrifice his own son. Ponder that and let that truth change your heart. Listen to how he teach it, treats us. Psalm 103 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Consider that. He doesn't treat you like a sinner that you are. He doesn't, doesn't punish you like you deserve. He cares for you. He forgives you. Listen to what he did for us in Romans 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we meditate on that kind of unheard of love, it should soften our hearts. That's what changes us. As we read about the good news 
Each time we open our scriptures, we're changed by degree to degree. As we hear each week in worship about how Jesus, actually God, became flesh and and voluntarily limited himself, it changes our hearts. As we read about how he willingly placed himself under the law that he created and lived under that law perfectly, because he knew we couldn't. That changes our hearts degree by degree. As we hear how he willingly gave up his life for us, substituting himself for us on the cross, dying for our sin, that should change us. How he was willing to suffer the separation of the Father for us so that we aren't separated from him. That changes our hearts. How he rose from the dead so that those who believe in him will too. That should change us degree by degree. When we hear about that type of love and kindness, when the gospels preach, we begin to be transformed. We understand how great the the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That changes us. Like the love Colonel Pickering showed Eliza changed her heart. The love of Christ should change us. It slowly transforms our hearts and our desires so that we no longer have to, but want to follow his commands. We no longer have to, but want to serve others. We no longer have to, but want to give our time to the kingdom. We no longer have to, but want to love our difficult neighbor. We no longer have to, but we want to give towards his kingdom. We no longer have to, but we want to forgive those who have hurt us deeply. It changes us that radically. Slowly, progressively, but it changes us. The gospel changes you so that you actually believe the next parable. That the kingdom is worth anything and everything. It changes you so radically that you believe that the kingdom is worth anything and everything. Look with me at verses 44 through 46. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went out and sold all he had and bought it. The kingdom of God Brothers and sisters, is worth anything and everything you have. And my question to you this morning is, do you believe that? In your heart of heart, do you believe that? Is the kingdom of God's priorities and urgencies worth sacrificing anything in your life? That's what Jesus is driving home in these two parables. The treasure and the pearl each represent the kingdom of God. 
And you have one farmer who kind of stumbles upon it. You have a, a merchant who is diligently looking and finds it. So whoever and however it's found, once it's found, and here's the point, they realize that what they have found is of such great value that they're willing to sell everything. They both go out and sell everything. They sell their house, they sell their oxen, they sell their cart, they sell their land, just to buy that. And Jesus is saying to us today, me and my kingdom is worth sacrificing everything for. Wilbur Reese wrote in his book, Three Dollars Worth of God. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. Just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a nap in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the pain of new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Some people think that God is a good thing to include in your life as long as he really doesn't get in the way or make too many changes. I don't know if that describes you today. As long as it doesn't cost too much, he's a good add-on. Right beside or possibly behind other activities and obligations in your life. But Jesus is telling us here, brothers and sisters, that can't be true of the kingdom of God. Can't be. Once you really encounter it, once you see the real significance of it, everything else in life becomes secondary. Everything else in life becomes dispensable, expendable. That's the progressive effect of Christ in your life. That's the progressive effect of Christ in your life. Is that true of you today? It's a good question to ask. Jesus seems to be implying it right here. Jesus elsewhere says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying the same thing, just in a different way. We see that in the case of the disciples' lives. They treasured God's kingdom so much they dropped their nets and followed him. And after he was risen and commissioned them, they went out and spent the rest of their lives sharing Christ, extending God's kingdom. They gave their lives to the very end. We seem to see that in the life of Paul. Here he was, a a cushy Pharisee, had the world by the tail. He left that and writes this later in his life. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for Christ's sake. What is more, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Martin Luther was probably writing autobiographically in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, when he wrote these lines, Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, 
God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. He's talking about the kingdom of God. I'll give my goods, my kindred, my family, my life for the kingdom. Missionary martyr Jim Elliott knew this when he famously penned that phrase that we all know so well. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's thinking about the kingdom of God. How about you today? Is everything else secondary? Everything. Let me put it to you a different way. Is there evidence that that is progressing in your life? It's good questions to ask. Good questions to ask over lunch today. Is the kingdom of God worth anything and everything to you? In 1922 in Zambia, a local antelope hunter was out hunting when he investigated whether he got his daily catch in the bush and he noticed where his bullets had hit a rock. There was some shiny exposed metal. On further investigation, he discovered that the land that he was hunting on was rich in copper. And so what he did is he went back and he got a couple friends together and they sold everything they had and they bought that land. Today that land is one of the biggest copper mining mines in, in the world. A good investment. Brothers and sisters, Christ is worth so much more than that mind. It's worth more than your spouse, your kids, your family, your job, your house, your land, everything. So I'll end with the question I began with. Do you believe it? Or would you rather have $3 worth of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for how it does challenge us and encourage us. Thank you for the reset you gave us these last two weeks on the kingdom between your first and second coming so that we can live well in the time you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.